and welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, and welcome to Grid Talk. Today, we're very excited to have, all the way from Australia, Audrey Zibelman, who we know from a variety of roles, probably primarily for her role as chair of the New York State Department of Public Service when they introduced some radical changes in the energy sphere in New York State. She's also been CEO of the Australian Energy Market Operator for over three years, close to four years. And after that was vice president at the um, Moonshot X factory at Google. Hi, Audrey. Hi, Marty. How are you? Good. You've got an impressive resume, and you bring expertise from a variety of perspectives. Um, I'd like you to just tell us most recently and help catch us up on what you did at the Moonshot Factory and uh, why anybody should be excited about what they're up to. Sure. Well, at at, uh, X, where I continue to be an advisor, I was brought in to lead a project around grid digitalization. And so, you know, and to me, the big critical part of uh, thinking about the whole process of decarbonization is that it's the amount of information we need to use and the about and the questions around visibility as well as the ability to integrate data and all of the various devices that are going to be used to help manage an affordable, reliable, clean electric system is massively more complex, obviously, than it was historically. And part of this is going to be creating these digital spines, as they're called, or digital platforms that allow allow us to, to manage this data and share it in such a way that um, we can make sure that we're achieving the outcomes that we need to achieve from a societal standpoint. So that, that was what I was doing at, at X. So X, as I understand it, means literally you're trying to bring solutions into being that are, have 10 times the impact, 10 times the impact on tough problems than conventional evolutionary technology. We've got folks like Enroll at the U.S. Department of Energy. We have folks like EPRI. Where do you think X is going where others are not going? And how are you interfacing with the industry and keeping them abreast of what you're achieving there? Well, again, I'm you know I'm no longer at X. The project is called Project Tapestry, and that continues to go on. And there is a, a recognition at Tapestry where we remote where it has to be a highly collaborative aspect, and they're working with utilities and multiple entities uh, to to build this. So it this is never going to be one entity is going to do it all. But um, and there are companies uh, like Camus Energy, which is doing integration of distributed energy resources, um, Span, which is looking at smart panels. All of these are various pieces that are going to be part of what we, this digital network that that needs to occur. And what um, and Tapestry um, as a project it wants to be a big piece of this too. And I think there's there's real value. So. What, what I think is interesting, Marty, if we can move to, you know, the conversation, I think what's happened in the 
ensuing time from when we created REV. And part of what we looked at at REV was the need to think about the computational tools and the digital tools that are going to be necessary is the conversation has now shifted to that there's a general recognition to the point that Ofgem, the uh, UK regulator, has just published a, an important request for comment on creating a dig- what they're calling a digital spine for the UK power networks. And so I think the, there's a recognition that along with the hardware that needs to happen for decarbonization and the building of obviously renewables and storage and transmission and networks is we also need the communication end-to-end communication backbone and computational analysis that's going to allow us to manage the grid of the future. And that, that what I'm pleased with is that that's no longer, you know, not and neglected as part of the conversation. It's becoming at the forefront. And, you know, certainly in Australia it is because we ran into real problems. In the UK it is because the regulator recognizes that information transparency is going to be critical. And I think in the US people are beginning to have these discussions too. And what we need to do in, you know, is bring this together and get a collective and understanding of what this platform will look like, what it needs to do and how important it's going to be to have an approach that makes it really easy for third parties to connect to the system. So give us a sense of the time frame you see this platform's creation. Is it going to happen in years, decades? And will it be constructed piecemeal? Will there be big pieces created first? What's the staging involved and how long will it take? Yeah, you know, pieces of it are already here. Uh, There's projects already in place. There's projects going on um, around the world that are different elements of what is going to be necessary. For example, in Australia, there's several projects, one called Project Symphony, one called Project Edge, that have built out some of the infrastructure for integration of distributed energy resources as a matter of necessity because rooftop solar is just such a prevalent portion of the grid here that we need to harness these resources to make sure that they are not, as I love the term, that the UK regulators, that they're not parasitic on the grid, but actually a good component of running a much more effective power system. And and so that's being done here. Um, Other organizations are already putting in some of the communications that, you know, if you go to Digitech and company Enterix is already working on putting in some of the communications network. So they're there. What I think what needs to happen is we need to have a common, as we often find in our industry, we saw with smart grid, everyone used the term, everyone had a different definition, is how do we come up with a one common understanding that having visibility of communication and the ability to make sure that we can easily, you know, install electric vehicles, uh, charging stations everywhere, and it works the same, and the grid is ready. We can think about when we electrify homes and put in um, hot electric hot water heaters, how these resources can be used. The APIs are the same that we all have a really good, strong understanding of that and the regulatory rules are set up and the market rules to take a full advantage of it, that we do that with joint understanding and approach as opposed to 
what often happens in this industry. It happens in silos and fragmented, and it takes too long. That's why I'm excited about the Ofgem sort of leadership and coming up with, this is our vision. We love your thoughts on it. But it's a vision that could be universally applied. And now we have to sort through how to deal with the different regulatory structures that we all have to live in. So who should be the lead on that in the United States? Should it be FERC, the Department of Energy? Should it be the independent system operators? Who would get this rolling in a big way? Well, I think I think the Department of Energy, you know, because of the IRA and because of their recognition of the role of virtual power plants and the desire around electrification, can play a really important role in helping define what this looks like. And I've been, you know, reading with interest some of the um, discussions coming out of uh, the loan program office around VPPs and their importance. And so, and I know, you know, Jigger and I know each other from New York, and we've been talking about transactive grids for a really long time. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, as everything, it's it's both the structure of the organization and the people in it can make a big difference. And I think the people at the DOE are, are recognizing this. I, so I think they can take a big leadership role. Certainly FERC has an important role, particularly as it relates also to the ISOs. And the state regulators have critical roles. So I was going to ask you to focus on that, given your state chops and what you did in New York. It's fragmented, the sophistication and the capabilities, and what will it take to get every state involved, and do we need every state involved? I think every state needs to understand, you know, the importance of uh, information, connectivity, communication, in order to take full advantage of driving efficiency in the grid, as well as you know, hardware on the system that allows us to do things like dynamic line rating so that we can take maximum capacity of the existing system as well as building new ones. So I think every state should be really aware that we now, with the with digital tools, can drive efficiency, which results in lower prices to consumers as well as better uh, resiliency at the edge of the system because we have better connectivity. Nobody should like look at this and say, oh, I don't want that. Well, why? <laughs> you would rather have an inefficient system? Let's have as efficient a system as we can. So I think we need to do that. Where I think Nehru can come in is really helping working with the federal government to say, well, how do we have a common view towards this? And then also, you know, we have different agencies like and entities like RAP who can say, well, what's the regulatory structure that needs to change so that... Uh, utilities, you know, as they think about digitalization, you know, aren't uh, economically penalized because of regulation. So we have this sort of bias towards capital. How do we how do we break some of these log jams that are, are a function of last century regulatory constructs that are maybe no longer relevant or as useful to drive outcomes as we need to do when we're talking about a much more so this uh, digitalized system that is less about hardware and as much as about software and operate and efficient operations. So I think we need to, you know, DOE can have a big role in sort of defining what does this look like? What are we really talking about and why? What's the use case for consumer benefit? Um, FERC can say, well, how do we make sure the markets 
are aligned in this way, and they've done a lot with 2222 and DER, and how do we make it work? And then I think the states can start saying, well, you know, there's nothing in it. It's like we never would have built the Internet if every state had a different way of thinking about the Internet. So Mm -hmm. how do we do this in such a way that we drive efficiency? And if we do that, the value, of course, is that from a manufacturing side and from a cost side, if everyone looks at it as a common approach, that that drives down costs and that and then it also helps get to scale. So I think all those pieces, the beauty, of course, in a country like the UK, where you, it's all based on one regulator, mm-hmm. it's a lot easier. In the US, because we're so fragmented, it's hard. But I think it's a conversation that shouldn't be seen as anything other than consumer-oriented because what we're talking about is how do we make the transition occur in such a way that is the most economically efficient for consumers and drives innovation because we're leveling the playing field around information. And that's that's the heart of, you know, a good transition. Recently, there was coverage in the media about the fact that there's a lot of renewable energy projects in the wings here in the United States that just can't get approved and built because of transmission bottleneck. How would digitization address that and help speed that along? I'm so glad you asked me that question. Um, you know, think about it. If if we had better information, this is something we did in Australia when we t- we in terms of creating a digital twin of the power system, and it's a lot of work. And countries like the U.S. need to be into this so that they can help create the tools. Um, is the idea that. If you do this and you have you've digitalized the grid and you can have now a real uh, operating twin of how the system not only is working today but how it will work because that's what we're modeling and we use cloud-based computing which is a lot faster then what happens when someone wants to interconnect to the system you know where you can provide the right security basis is that they can now see what the mo- what will happen on the system when they connect you could set the protocol of what's going to be required in order to make sure that you don't impair the system when you do connect. And then when you come in with your application, you can use your own engineers to say, we've used the model of this system of what will happen when we will connect. And now we can demonstrate that when we do connect, we're not going to create a problem on the system because that's what's holding, that's a lot of what's holding things up is you, you have to model that you know, you're connecting into a power system and you're not going to impair it. And if it looks like you need to invest in some sort of resources, you can do that as part of your application. We can speed it up. So you know, another way of thinking about it, rather than just using the system operators and utility engineers, third-party engineers can get the same information. They don't have to debate about what's the source of truth. There's just one truth. This is what will happen. We know what the protocol is, and here's how we're meeting it, could totally expedite things. And then the other piece, of course, is when physical transmission is required, you can also have third parties say, well, we're willing to you know, put some money into this because this is, this is our asset that we're trying to get online. So you can start then unlocking other models. I, I liken it to, you know, when you think about what Google Maps has done, for our economy in terms of information transparency and how many great businesses were constructed because we created transparency or the internet itself or any other platform 
digitalization of the grid can provide us these tools so that it's not just one small group that is looking at it and we provide the and, and the information becomes more transparent. And of course, the inevitable question is, how do you protect cybersecurity? Well, you can do that by containing us who can get access and what credentials. And we do that all the time. So I think we can get there. But yes, having better information, having a single source of truth, having a model that everyone believes in, so you don't have this war of models, all will make a significant difference in how we get this done faster. Well, I tell you, the the concept of having a single source of truth in these crazy times is is very appealing. Maybe we could apply it to our political and social reality as well. Yeah, that would be nice too. (laughs) And it was truly true. Um, just parenthetically, I have to ask you about an article that was in the New York Times this weekend about a massive uh, green hydrogen project being planned in Australia, where they're going to put solar and wind out there and create the equivalent of a third of the grid need of Australia to clean up mine production. How big is that and how excited are you by that project? Uh, it's hugely exciting, and you know I'm um, I have the benefit of uh, being on a board here, Squadron Energy, which is a actually owned by uh, Andrew Forrest, who is also the CEO of Fortescue Metals, and uh, he the ambition that Australia has around creating um, using green hydrogen as a mechanism as one of the tools to uh, create green steel. And green cement is fantastic. And, you know, the advantage that Australia has is, is that it's a country that has some of the best wind and solar resources and, of course, land to do it. And so the fact that we can produce goods here and Australia has aims to be a green hydrogen superpower is great because this is what we're all talking about. This is a country that a lot of its economy was built on extraction, including coal extraction. And staying in energy through the creation of green energy as an alternative is, you know, is extremely exciting and uh, a great way of thinking about how the transition can be can generate economic growth as well as um, protecting obviously the natural environment. So it is really exciting, and I, you know, and I what I love is the optimism. This is again one of the reasons is exciting about companies like X is you have to have this level of ambition. And willingness to dig in and get it done, and that's that's what they're trying to do. Well, it it really is transformative when you think of the kind of extracting companies that we always thought were the bad guys becoming leaders in this transformation. That they get it, both forget about morally, they get it economically. They, they see the economics of it. That's right. That's right. And you know, and, and I think part of one of the things uh, that we need to we need to do is we need to make sure that. You know, as we're thinking about the transition, every geography will have different ways to get there. And some will have better advantages than others just don't have. For example, you can't really do what Australia is doing in a country, uh, you know, like Indonesia, where there's hundreds of millions of people in a small area. But if you could produce it here, then, of course, in, you know, the rest of the world can benefit because now you have effectively free electrons producing green steel. But if you do it in Australia, why couldn't you do it in Morocco or... Other countries like that. Countries with a lot of open space, with a lot of sun. That's right. 
and potentially wind. That's right. It's not necessarily tied to an extraction industry. It could be done for other purposes, right? That's right. So you could perfect the capabilities and then you can produce it, certainly green hydrogen, other places. And that could help with fertilizers, cement, some of the really hard scope two and scope three decarbonization that needs to occur. And so learning how to do it and with the willingness to you know, show that you can take a mining, which nobody ever thinks of as um, although it's, if you've ever been to these mines, they're highly sophisticated. Um, but basically, as early technology adopters, but they're looking at this because they recognize this is the hard stuff that we need to start getting to. So in the last few minutes, let me take you back to a timetable. When you talk about digitization of the grid, um, and you say it's already happening in pieces, is there a tipping point where you think we're going to be on that downward slope of really achieving great things, and how long will it be? Here in the United States, let's focus on the United States. Yeah, I think what's going to happen in the United States, and, and similar to what we saw in Australia, but for different reasons, I think we're going to see a tipping point in the next decade of around EVs. And so we have to get the charging infrastructure up there. And, you know, probably a similar tipping point around electrification. So within that, in order for that to work, we need to build a digital piece out. And that's not going to be, we're going to build it and then it's just going to sit there. We need to build the first pieces of it. And I think the elements of that are there. We just need to combine them and put them together. So I think we have an opportunity to actually, with a bit of vision, and um, to get this done within the next five years, at least the first components. And um, one of the organizations I work with through RMI is Energy Web Foundation, and they've built actually a big piece of this already in, in Australia and in Europe. And so we can move too quickly. Um, it's not, as always, I don't think, it's not a technology issue. I think technology can move, and it'll continue to grow in sophistication. Um, it's, it's really getting the, the vision and regulatory framework set up. And I think we have the momentum behind us now, you know, in many parts of the U.S. where people are saying, oh, look, the, we, we're not going to be able to implement the policies because we don't have the capabilities. And so that's creating the urgency to get it done. And I'm optimistic that in the next few years we can pull it all together and at least have the first components built and then go from there. And I, I think this is an area, frankly, you know, of course, I feel like U.S. should play huge leadership in. And um, our challenge is the uh, need to get all the various regulatory bodies to be speaking the same language and taking, moving in the same direction. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, when you peek in on New York State and see how Rev has been playing out, what pleases you the most and what surprises you the most? Well, what I'm really excited about in New York is uh, the ambition continues to grow and the desire to move, you know, uh, in a, be a leadership is, continues to be there. So the uh, movement towards New York around uh, storage is great. Offshore wind is fantastic. Um, that people continue to drive the need to think about uh, leadership in terms of how in a northeastern country like this we look we need to look at electrification um, in order to achieve our goals and so they're, rec they're recognizing that one they need to continue to lead secondly leadership's not enough you need to put money behind it so green bank has been you know highly successful and third 
is that the policy objectives and goals need to survive multiple administrations because you need that continuity, that that's there. Are they, in fact? Yeah, I think they are. I think they are. I think, you know, um, Governor Hochul is sort of up the ante again. And so I, I don't think there should be any question in anyone's mind that New York wants to lead in decarbonization and demonstrate that a northeastern state can use electrification and can use good policy to drive positive outcomes for consumers. I'm also extremely excited. They just announced uh, part of their policy is to start looking at what I thought was really important as we, we look at price and that no one in New York should pay more than 6% of their income for energy. So looking, you know, recognizing that in order for the transition to occur successfully, and maintain what one would call social license. The two things need to happen. Electricity needs to continue to be reliable. The system, energy, needs to continue to be reliable and affordable because otherwise nothing else would work. And that fact that, that New York is seeing this as a solutions that need to, to recognize that all of this has to occur, but that you can get there with the right types of policies is fantastic. So the last question I want to ask you, Audrey, is summing up, you, you've seen what's happened in New York State, uh, what you wrote and how it's playing out. You've seen what a leading innovative company like Google is doing on sustainability fronts. You've been on the, both sides of the Pacific now. You see the Australian experiment versus the U- U.S. experiments. And you're cognizant of everything that's happening around the world are you optimistic about dealing with climate change and getting our energy system where it needs to be? Yeah. You know, Marnie, I'm also, I mean, I just sort of have the pleasure of also to be sitting as a member of the board of trustees of Rocky Mountain Institute. And 60% of Rocky Mountain Institute's work is in the global south, who is also rushing to try to make sure they're transitioning well. We use the term there of applied hope which I, I love, and it's sort of, it comes out of, it's Amory Lovin's sort of thought process is, um, you know, one is apply facts, always look at the facts, but also we're at a point now where we've crossed the Rubicon of, I think, recognizing this is the direction we need to go, and now we need to put together the systems that get us there. So, yes, it's going to be super hard, but We've won a lot of the the wars already, and now we just need to get on with it. And I think that's, I'm very optimistic we'll get there and excited we'll get there. And I don't think we have a a choice, so we have to, right? So on that note, thank you very much, Audrey, for chatting with us. Um, It's always a pleasure, and uh, let's check in again. Okay, thanks for the opportunity, Marty. Thank you for listening to Grid Talk. We invite you to send feedback or questions to us at gridtalk at nrel.gov, and we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. For more information about this series or to subscribe, visit smartgrid.gov. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.